Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your almost weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I do various things at a place called Freethink Media, which oftentimes makes it difficult for me to keep up with what's happening in the news cycle. This week, however, that's not even the excuse. <laughs> the real excuse is I'm just so sick and tired of all of this Shit. So you've shown up on a great week. <laughs> wow. uh, fortunately, why would fortunately, anyone listen to this I now? Flanked I, by I know nothing perhaps... about what's going on in the news cycle, and yeah. I don't care, and I'm angry. Yeah. I've got yeah. bad attitudes I'm, about it. I didn't say nothing. Jeez. He gets um, really mad when but actual flanked, bad things happen. To I'm flanked by these other people. <laughs> these other people. Yeah. The ones uh, you know I about heard the news that, cycle. I heard that thing that you just said, Mr. Matt Welch, yeah. editor at large, Reason Magazine, you suggested that I'm somehow simpatico with the Magonauts, but not really. There's so Jeez. back in the building, behind the microphone, as you can tell, Mr. Michael C. Moynihan. Yeah, that was the least all sorts of great stuff. Clap ever. Advice yeah, tonight. Yeah, um, which is great. Um, very happy to have you back, Moynihan. We Thank can you. Can talk about what you've been doing sure. while you were away. I don't remember. Fun in the sun, perhaps. Fun Maybe sun, some work in the sun. Some journalism. I'm not little, sure. A little bit of journalisming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but also joined by our very good friend, Anthony Fisher who is doing things at the week and has some position there. Yep. It's so, a position of importance. Kind of a thing. Yeah. yeah. This is the first Whatever. time the four of us have been together. It is. In two and a half months? Yeah. Probably, yeah. yeah. And it's a, a summer, you know? And a momentous week for of, it as well. And Post Malone had that did, very close call with his uh, airplane. I Well, at least you know the real stories, Camille. I do. <laughs> sure yeah. as hell. And slime yeah. language. Young Thug dropped slime language. I don't know why well. Post Malone's pilot isn't the new Sully. I don't know why right. we're not talking about that. He's a real First, hero. What, what's going on with Carl Malone? Uh, Where is he? <laughs> He's hunting in <laughs> is he working? Is he the, working as a postman? He's Post, still Post? upset about magic at Nate's. I know. Oh, my God. <laughs> HIV. Wow. He broken up about it. Yeah. Broken, broken up about him, him having it. Just like you know, come on. Well, I'm Probably more just... broken up that he got the cure. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh! Good God! That is a terrible thing to terrible. say. Terrible. Too soon. No, it's actually he's a man. He's, he's, he's a he's man had... who's father to 105 children, uh, by 52 Johnson? different women. Is that right? No, Carl Malone. Oh, Carl Malone. Is, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Magic, Magic Johnson. Magic, he kept it real with Cookie. A prolific. Yeah, he's yeah. a prolific scorer. Yeah, he has. Uh, uh, he has one son there, uh, Magic Johnson, who's right. Uh, who's uh, pretty flamboyant there. I think is the yeah. Is he's the a, word that true. you use. Uh, yeah, pretty much ladyboy. Yeah. What's uh? What does he do? I see him on like the the television there sometimes. I <laughs> sorry to sound like Norman. He was on a reality <laughs> TV show, I think, at one point. Yeah, I think that's why. Yeah. yeah. Was yeah. that Love and Basketball? I don't remember. No, that was a movie. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know. So basically what we've established for our listeners, hopefully there are no new listeners, uh, <laughs> is that nobody knows anything. And if, you, if you've downloaded this and wasted the bandwidth on your phone, you will get absolutely no reward we'll, for and, doing and so. And you'll get references to late yeah. 80s, early 90s basketball players. Sure. And homophobia. No, but I, I did I, mention Not homophobia. I'm, I'm a that, big celebrator of, uh, of, AIDS. of uh, yeah, no, of the, the, the guy, <laughs> the, the son. <sighs> Delete everything. Yeah, yeah. I, I really, really, <laughs> yeah. seriously. Oh, this is just not. Good. At least I'm not going to lose my job. Uh, <laughs> Don't start. Uh, but Matt won't either because he's editor at large. <laughs> <laughs> effectively means he doesn't have a job. Thank you. I have said things that have happened this week. The Post Malone thing. That's a real situation that took place. Nobody Everyone cares. was watching that. Chris it was no, like that Chris plane that got lost cared. in Asia. He was, he was like, yeah. uh, wrapped no, up. In I it. don't even know who that is. The bass player Nirvana. No, I know the. I know him. Yeah, I'm not a native. You don't know who Post Malone is. I don't know. 
who he is. No. Does does anyone know is that his name? name? Fisher, you I, know. No, I, I learned. Yes, post- it's a person and not a band. Is because I, I saw a photo of him. and He had like tattoos on his face. Yeah, and his right? teeth. I think. What is yeah. wrong with these people? The tattoos on the face. I mean, come on now. Well, look. It, 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 there was a trend in the '90s in which everyone of my age cohort got really, really shitty tattoos. Uh, up and down their upper bodies, which they can cover. Like, for instance, I will say a guest on the show, twice a guest on the show, and a fantastic mind on legal issues, Damon Root. Hmm. I was unaware, and Damon, I'm going to blow your spot up a little bit here. I was unaware for a very long time that Damon Root has sleeve tattoos on both arms because he covered them up with very nice dress shirts. Um, and you know, in the mean, in the middle of that, he would tell me about the, like the Tampa hardcore scene or whatever, <laughs> and I'm a little suspicious, but these, the trend now is to get them on your face. There's a lot of, like, I remember when people were like, oh my God, Mike Tyson got this oh, scribble yeah. on the side that's of his true. face. Yeah. And there was, was like, deal I, it was a big deal. Yeah. And now everybody's got no, the, the face No, that's a very big thing in hip hop. Well, Do Post I sound Malone, like an old man just <laughs> reminding me about A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. Only because you don't know who Post Malone is, who has one of the bigger albums of the year, Beer, Bongs, Beer Bongs and Bentleys. And he did that song with 21 Savage, who is another like very big artist. I mean, is the name Post Malone talking about Carl Malone's work in the Post? No, I don't think so. <laughs> not, not to my is knowledge. Post, Post Malone's white, isn't he? I don't. I don't. I think light skinned. I think is the word term uh, they use. I, I is, it, is it light skinned? I just saw a picture from far away. He looked pretty white to me. I don't think that's yeah. a thing. Yeah. I don't know what you. Mulatto? I don't know. What's that? I don't know if he's culturally appropriating. Mulatto is totally racist. Oh my god. Yeah. That's no. You cannot use that. Yeah. Right? Is that over? Yeah. Oh, like that's way over. Way over. Yeah. That was like that People was after that Octoroon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these are things that are over. Like the way you couldn't say colored in the eighties. That's where you are right now. Yeah. 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 You're in the 1780s. <laughs> God, Matt. Matt. Matt actually looks a little uncomfortable. Yeah. There are things that are happening in the world mm. this week. This is a big week, not only because of Post Malone's plane situation, not only because of slime language dropping, not only because of us finally getting to hear Young Thug's project, which he recorded with Elton John some time back in Rocket Man Remix. Very good, by the way. I really enjoyed it. But also because of the Manafort Cohen news, that these two gentlemen, high profile members of Trump's inner circle, one of whom was a campaign manager for Trump, one of whom served as a personal lawyer for, to the president of the United States, now president of the United States while he was running for president, um, and also did a bunch of dirt for him, dirty work, as he might himself describe it. I would take a bullet for him. Yeah, is what you said. among other things. Yeah. I think he also threatened to ruin people uh, in various contexts. Um, but this gentleman had done a bunch of, of, of things for Donald Trump. Both of these men uh, find themselves in very serious hot water this week. Legally, um, <laughs> we can talk about some of that. There's also like, Elizabeth Warren's accountable capitalism bill, uh, which seems to be making some waves out there. Maybe there's some interest in chatting about that. There's some spokesperson issues for the Me Too movement. I'm not sure if anyone has any interest in that. It's a story that I'm I've sure. barely followed, but I yes. suspect some of you gentlemen may have perspectives on it. Um, and... It also sounds like we finally reached the end of the road with the whole marijuana decriminalization thing, because now we've discovered that there are people who have issues with marijuana mm. and legalization is making life much worse for them, which I imagine is not unlike seeing Twinkie commercials when you're on a diet. It's very hard. It's unfortunate for you. And we mm. should ban Twinkies. There ought to be a law. Yeah. Interestingly but, specific there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it is. Yeah. Well, I try. I try to help. So maybe we start with this Cohen Manafort situation. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a situation where I find myself completely exhausted by the volume and the continuation of all of these various scandals from the Trump administration. There is 
a fever pitch in this particular city. There is a lot of excitement here in New York where mm. we are and amongst the media in general about what's happening right now. And it is a big deal when you have two people this close to the president who find themselves either pleading guilty to certain things, taking plea deals, um, or are convicted of counts with Manafort in his particular case. This guy could spend the rest of his life in prison, it seems, no. as a consequence of perhaps these charges and the subsequent charges, which he still faces and still has to go yeah, right. to trial yeah. for in yeah. D.C. There's a lot as well as on a here. possible and, retrial on the 10 counts that well, the jury was hung on. Which and worse yet, even if there was some sort of pardon issued by the president, there could still be charges brought at the state level, which the president has no ability to pardon him from. Um, so the guy is kind of screwed. Um, and, um, and there's something to, and something to the fact, by the way, pointed mm-hmm. out by almost everyone that both the, the, the plea, mm-hmm. uh, from Michael Cohen, Cohen yep. and the guilty verdicts uh, happened within three or four minutes one, uh, of one another. It's pretty astonishing. So it just, yeah, Same I mean, day. that was, that was just like, it got everyone very excited. And here's the thing. I think that one of the things on this, you have to separate and we tend to forget this. And I think that, you know, when I see people uh, particularly conservatives uh, defending Donald Trump when I know they don't like Donald Trump is that the thing that we've discussed before, and it's something that that we should continue discussing, is that people, I, I find so many people that I know, you know, on the right and people I used to sort of know in D.C., end up defending Donald Trump because they hate the media so much. I mean, that's essentially they're, they're mad about how the media is thumbing the scale against Donald Trump. And they would never do this to Barack Obama. They'd never do this to Bill Clinton and these commensurate scandals that Clinton had. And they tend to forget that they're defending a guy who is in some ways indefensible. So they have to separate, I think, to separate these things of like, is Donald Trump being unfairly treated compared to other people in the past? Fine. Make that case, but make that case separately from whether or not these charges are serious and significant. But that's, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, yeah, sure. I mean, when I saw in the past sort of 24 hours amongst people that I know here, um, and most people that I follow on Twitter, et cetera, is that it's kind of a tacit acknowledgement that they got ahead of themselves when they kind of, you know, whoever it was, Elsie Hastings, probably uh, Steve Cohen, um, whom I know and really, really like, actually. But, you know, uh, saying that we are going to uh, introduce articles of impeachment in the House, et cetera. And there's a sort of acknowledgement now that like, yeah, we got a little ahead of ourselves because we hate this man so much. And now we have something and everyone starts salivating and saying, oh, God, we're going to look at this. We're, we're talking about NPR this morning. I think it was on Morning Edition or um, another. Maybe it was a different show after Morning Edition where they were talking about, OK, so now does that mean we're any closer to impeachment? And it was kind of like people saying like, OK, we might have gotten ahead of ourselves, but, but, but are we there yet? Are we there? <laughs> They're kind of the kids in the backseat of the car on the way to Disney World. Are we uh-huh. there yet? Are we there? Can we impeach yet? And yeah, that's annoying. But, you know, if we strip out the noise of other people, which is what we get hung up with in this age, of uh-huh. like we're not responding so much to what's happening out there in the courtrooms and out there with the Mueller investigation and with prosecutors and with judges and with juries. We're more responding to our peers and media, which is this kind of self-referential, you know, navel gazing culture that we all live in, is that, OK, so what did Michael Cohen do and how bad of a situation is he in? And then politically, is this, I mean, you could say the politically is this good for Republicans in the midterms. But, you know, why is Donald Trump saying incredibly nice things about Paul Manafort? Well, by the way, I have to say, offering a very funny tweet this morning. That was hilarious. <laughs> it was like, look, Donald Trump is a scumbag and I hate him more than as people who listen to the show. 
No, and um, but he tweeted this uh, uh, this morning, and I'm going to read it to you if you guys. We're haven't. recording this on uh, Wednesday. We're on Wednesday uh, this morning at uh, 5:44 a.m. Um, I think that's when he went to sleep on his meth binge. If anyone is looking for a good lawyer, I would strongly suggest that you don't retain the services of Michael Cohen. <laughs> There's something genius about that in kind of like a Norm MacDonald way, like reading that with a Norm accent. But I don't know if he realizes that. But, you know, so he's saying that about Cohen while being very smart about what he says about Paul Manafort. He's very sad what's happening. He's very sad. He's a good man. He's very, a good man. Yeah. Who didn't break and make up stuff like Cohen did. Exactly. And I, I think that, you know, he had previously said that Paul Manafort, he like ba- ba- barely knew him despite the fact that he was running his campaign. There's always those things. He's like, I, I don't know that guy. I don't know. I never really heard of him. So the litany of stuff that Paul Manafort, however, to, yeah. before we turn to Cohen, which is where most of the excitement and enthusiasm is right now, because Cohen has actually named Trump and suggested that when he, in fact, broke the law, he was breaking the law at the direction of the president of the United yeah. States. Um, but but sticking with Manafort for a moment, Manafort, in addition to the the dodgy Ukrainian Russian affiliations and associations that he's had in recent years, I mean, prior to that, there seemed to be some other campaign finance shenanigans related to the Reagan administration, where he took bags of money from foreign folks, which was supposed to be making its way to the president, but of course would have been illegal had it made its way to the Reagan administration or the Reagan campaign um, and kept the money himself, it seems. The Reagan uh, administration said we never got that money. Apparently also has some strange relationships with the Bahamian prime minister who also might have been involved in narcotics trafficking. So for Manafort to find himself in this situation yeah. now is not all that surprising. As you guys look at this, however, what is it about this particular case that you think might be consequential? Well, I think Manafort, you mean? Uh, the Manafort, in the yes. Manafort case. Yeah. Because uh, it, it seems like the easier this, of the two. To, this to, to might not with. be the most consequential aspect, but it's one that hasn't been, I, I think, uh, uh, talked that much in the discussion about it. The closing arguments of in the Manafort trial there's a lot, if you if you were following the trial closely, there's a lot of people saying, I'm not sure that the prosecution has all that. They they based a lot. Their expert witness was Rick Gates, mm-hmm. who's a total scumbag like mm-hmm. Manafort. He's his longtime partner. Yep. Um, he seemed to lie on the witness stand at some point or get caught BSing. Um, the government was sort of backtracking from him saying, oh, we didn't need to call him up here. So <laughs> that didn't look very good. A lot of this stuff at least in the closing arguments uh, from the defense, was like, hey, look, yeah, bank fraud. Yeah, he didn't register with foreign, uh, foreign as a foreign agent, although most of that's going to be in the next trial. Um, but this is kind of the murky word world of lobbyists and campaign finance. A lot of people kind of color outside the lines, don't know where the lines are. This is what happens. What you have is a, a very motivated uh, special uh, prosecutor who is going after Trump and the only reason that we're here is because of that reason. You know, if, if he was going after Hillary Clinton when she was in power, we might be going after somebody named Podesta. We might be going, be going after Lanny Davis. Who knows? We'd be going after somebody different. That is the reason why we're all here. This is the argument that, that they made. Uh, and this is also why we didn't uh, uh, bring Manafort to the witness stand. 
uh, it, it, to present the defense. If you think about it, that is Trump's defense for what he's doing. That's his approach. Trump's not going to ever going to meet with the Mueller at all. They're going to dance around it, but I think he's going to ultimately and smartly not ever testify if he has any say into it. Uh, he's been saying the whole time, this is a witch hunt. We're only here because the 17 angry Democrats and perhaps Uranium One and the witch hunt and all these kinds of things. It's a very, very similar argument. So I look at this as, as a bit of a test case on that line of thinking. And so it's significant uh, in that that was the defense that they made and it wasn't persuasive or let's say it was half persuasive because they convicted him on, on eight counts and they're more or less the more serious of the counts and they didn't on 10 counts. So uh, this line of Trump defense that they will be using big difference here. They'll be using it mostly in the court of public opinion. There's a reason why we should talk about uh, public opinion here is because if this goes anywhere, it goes to the House of Representatives and later the Senate. This this will uh, yeah. Robert Mueller is not going to for, for impeachment, you're saying. Yes. Mm -hmm. So this will at some point be very sensitive to uh, public opinion. So um what we've seen is that in a in a jury trial, which is a different thing than than uh, than Congress, to be sure. But in in that kind of hot house environment, using an argument that's very much like the Trump Giuliani argument right now, people are like, yeah, no, that's not convincing. I think that is one of three or four reasons why Trump yeah. is really shitting his pants right now. Although I the think, things, yeah. although the specific things that Manafort was on trial for, are very different than the kinds of things that it seems. Giuliani on the president's behalf is effectively arguing against the president and Giuliani seem narrowly focused on this question of whether or not they colluded with the Russians and and, suppose, and obstruction. I mean, they actually are and the obstruction to, question. They're sure. trying to make it all about obstruction. Yeah. on some level, I'm then saying there's no evidence for. Yeah, I mean, look, we can meet the press. But he hasn't been right. charged, right? So, like, they, yeah. it's 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 vaporware. They don't know what they're yeah. fighting against. And it's, not, not, not entirely insignificant that in the second trial that's coming, Manafort is also charged with obstruction, which happened after he was initially charged. Mm -hmm. You know, look, I mean, I think the, there's a few things about this, and of course, as Matt says, and you hear this a lot from from uh, Trump world, is that, you know, it's about Russia, and all of a sudden we're talking about Paul Manafort's ostrich coats, is that, you know, this is not an uncommon thing. We, we like this when it supports our guys, and remember, in the Clinton investigation, how we get to Monica Lewinsky from sure. the Rose Law Firm. I mean, sure. they say, this is what happens, right? And there's a way to avoid this sort of thing that Donald Trump um, doesn't care much about, because he's lived this way with impunity for most of his life, is you don't hire these types of people, right? So what what is the kind of effect, the cumulative effect that, that, that this has? Well, all it's all happening right now. And whether or not kind of anti-Trump conservatives or liberals are getting ahead of themselves with talk of impeachment, whether it's, you know, Max Boot or people on Democracy Now!, is that this has all come at one, at, at one point. I mean, you have two Republican congressmen, the first two to endorse Donald Trump have been indicted in the past couple days. And right? oh man, that Duncan. Oh my God, the Duncan Hunter, Hunter indictment Hunter, is insane. Chris Collins, Duncan Hunter, the first two. So you have two ways of looking at this. Number three is Jeff Sessions. Yep. Yeah, number three is Jeff Sessions. <laughs> yeah. Words out of my mouth. And 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 you have a couple of ways to look at this. The first one <laughs> is that Donald when, Trump would probably welcome that in that. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. At this point, yeah. <laughs> is that you have little the, Jeff Sessions? The, the conspiratorial <laughs> mind of uh, a certain segment of Trump voters, which is always going to be about 20, 30% of the population will support them no matter what. 
um, is that it's not a coincidence that one and two happened in the first uh, within a couple of days of each other. And within four minutes of each other, Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort, this stuff happens. It's all being coordinated by the deep state, et cetera. You're going to hear a lot of that. Duncan Hunter has said this is a witch hunt done by the Democratic Justice Department. Exactly. Democratic Justice Department. And he said that today. And it is insane and it is stupid. But at the same time, if... Uh, the so, uh, people who cared about politics or voted in elections, no matter who they are. Now, you don't have to be somebody who listens to talk radio, or listens to this show or watches Fox News or something. One would expect that on the very, very top level of this, we remember what this campaign was all about. And if you were to pick one thing beyond the sort of vacuous and vapid and pointless statement of make America great again, presuming it wasn't great until this bozo came into came into office, you would say that it's probably drain the swamp, right? So we have not only, I will, I will broaden this beyond Donald Trump, and I will say that, look, you have uh, Duncan Hunter, and that indictment, which I guess we'll get to, is the, the most insane thing ever. My favorite detail was he bought a pair of golf shorts, uh, and Hunter, by the way, an, an Iraq and Afghanistan veteran, and said, put it on there as I bought golf balls for wounded warriors, which is great. Like, because, you know, these guys that have missing legs from, you know, IED explosions, they need buckets of golf balls, apparently. And that's what they put in an incredibly scummy thing. Uh, the Chris Collins stuff, I don't know the details of it, but it seemed pretty, pretty rotten. Uh, of course, Manafort is these hilarious details of, you know, ostrich coats and, 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 and this sort of Michael Cohen is one of the biggest rat bags. And it's no coincidence that a man uh, like Donald Trump, who is friends and uh, compadres of Roy Cohn, chose his kind of modern day version. And then who's defending him? Lanny Davis. Does anyone, has anyone mentioned, and I don't believe anyone has, the story the New York Times did, I think in 2010, about Lanny Davis's ratbag uh, consultancy in DC, in which he was defending and taking money from people that are forgotten scumbag African dictators, like um, was it Lauren Bagbo, who was uh, the, the, the strong man on Ivory Coast. And then there was, I can't remember who else, Equatorial Guinea, like all these, like Lanny Davis. He is the Paul Manafort. of. He is the Paul Manafort of the Democratic Party. Everybody involved in this from top to bottom is a swamp creature, right? And this drain the swamp is like, oh, by the way, all these guys who are going to jail or going to cop plea deals, everyone's flipping on one another, you know, Gates and then uh, Cohen and like, Everyone's got something to hide. They're all, you know, extracting money from the system in any way they possibly can. And then, you know, on the other hand, you have people like Elizabeth Warren and people like this saying, oh, by the way, um, you know, we we should uh, put limits on lobbying and how much money people can make, et cetera. And like, by the way, if you're a Democrat right now, exploit the ever loving shit out of this. And it, I mean, Elizabeth Warren with the capitalism bill, you know, the correct capitalism, whatever the hell it is, mm -hmm. uh, is maybe a bridge too far. But if you're smart as a Democrat, you just say, guys, don't you see? All this is happening. When we turn our guns on these people, they all crumble because they're all crooks. These are the people that told you they're going to drain the swamp. They now own the swamp and they're slithering around the bottom of it. That is an easy, easy sell for Democrats now, just at a purely political level. And whether or not this stuff's true, whether or not, I mean, like the Manafort stuff, it seems like this is this is not a good guy and never has been, has been notorious in D.C., and you hired that man as your campaign manager. I mean, there's no escaping that. Yeah, so to pivot to the Cohen thing, or at least to add that to the, to the conversation, having already set the table in this way, with the Cohen situation, we have multiple things happening here. We have some 
uh, allegations of tax evasion um, as a consequence of him leasing uh, taxi medallions that he owned in a bizarre and strange way as if, as so as to obscure the monies that he was making from these leases. Um, he was also involved in um, some, uh, there were some other related um, tax evasion schemes, but the only thing that people are really interested here, in here um, are the payments that were made to two women who claim to have had sexual relations with President Trump. Plausible. Plausible. Yes. Um, in either case, the payments were made, it seems, through the Trump organization, which seems to be where the problem comes in because of the timing of these payments. Well, one of the, the way ones. in which the payments were made. Well, one of the payments, correct. The other one was a shell company and the charges that it's that's, that's over exactly the individual right. amount that a person can. That's exactly right. So, but, it, but in both cases, I guess they would qualify as... Yeah. Um, as I'm, I'm forgetting what the specific language is in the um, in the document there, but it would qualify as having a corporation make an illegal yes. contribution to a campaign because these are both corporations. It just so happens that one of them is actually a corporation owned by the guy who is president of the United States now. Um, and in both cases, these were happening in a way that seems to run afoul of campaign finance law. One thing I'm not entirely clear of is if the president had actually made those payments himself if that would have actually been a violation of campaign finance law. It's not obvious to me. I would say that, you know, and again, there's the cutout issue, but he was on Fox today mm-hmm. with Ainsley Earhart, um, the fantastically named Founder? Ainsley Earhart. Uh, the, I think you the find sis- her on Easter Island? Yeah, the sister of <laughs> Amelia Earhart. They found her on Fox and Friends. <laughs> That's um, not true. She, uh, she was a captive of Steve Ducey. Uh, <laughs> what is he? His son, like Bill Ducey or something? That little little weirdo? Uh, <laughs> sorry, have you ever seen that guy? He's a creep. I, I have. Um, well, they're I mean, both weirdos. But uh, so he's on and he's like, hey, I that was my money. That was my, and he said that today. And it's funny because... I guess this has been threaded in a particular way that, of course, no one gives a shit about people lying, like Mm -hmm. politicians lying like this. Donald Trump said multiple times, multiple times he lied about this and said, didn't know about it, then did know about it, then wasn't my money, then was he, his money and he paid me back. It was Michael Cohen's original story was, no, no, I I gave, it's my money. Yeah. I wrote this check because I love Donald Trump. And then Giuliani on Fox was like, uh, by the way, that was, he paid for it. And then Trump today on Fox was like, that was my money. It wasn't a campaign. It's not, it's me. I'm doing this. I'm not a campaign uh, contribution. It's like a cartoon. And you can't even keep up with the dishonesty of this. But can't, can't there be uh, at, at some point, maybe they're all moving towards uh, uh, an incompetence plea yeah. or, or like an insanity plea? <laughs> yeah. Like, look at us. Yeah. Can you believe we have no fucking ideas? I, I, I honestly don't think you're entirely off there because, <laughs> because they, they could, they could, you can literally make a case that he's so pathological and so unstable that none of his public statements can possibly be taken literally. <laughs> I, look, that, I've had this conversation. Yeah. I love like, the insanity defense. Yeah, it's like, Your Honor, he's just wigged out. He's a genetic. <laughs> he's just, look at him. Yeah. This is the thing that when I, in this, the thing that I did, the, the, the trade thing that I did for the weekly show, and Art Laffer in Bravo. it, you know, who said yes. to me, he's like, I, you know, I, I think that, <laughs> I don't remember the final end of the piece, but I think I, when I said to him, I was like, you're hoping that the president isn't telling the truth. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, it used to be that you would you would um, hope a president kept his promises and Trump supporters like like our laugh are hoping that he's lying. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, no, no, he's just full of it all the time. It's just what he does. It's a thing. And like that is kind of the defense. Right. Yeah. Is and, that, I mean, he's kind of full uh, of it. First of all, that was a, it was a great. Michael's special was great. You should oh, all watch it go. on uh, HBO Go and wherever you can find it. But that moment in, in particular was outstanding because Laffer is sitting there. He's, he's always the cheery warrior he throughout is. the whole thing. Yeah. And you're sitting there going, you literally repeat his own words back to him and you go, he scares you. Yeah, yeah. He goes, <laughs> he goes yes, yeah. But, but I don't believe him. Yeah, I mean, he's a liar. I, th- I think he, I think he's a liar. Yeah. So he'll do the right thing. That's what everyone. That was like I had that from a number of people who were like, ah, oh, no, don't, don't believe him. Come on, he's not telling. It's probably, but the the problem is that they make this argument that he's negotiating, and I was like, no, he's just pathological. He'll say whatever he thinks will get out of whatever situation. I mean, we've all had girlfriends like that, right? We've had relatives like that. You know, whatever will to get me out of the situation, I'm just going to say it, and that's. Essentially what and I think that's where he gets into trouble uh, ultimately because this is going to be played in the political sphere is that um, that is convincing or at least it's it's not repellent instinctively to a core of people and not to anybody outside that core. Yeah. And there is a midterm election. There's a poll today, the generic congressional uh, poll, which, you know, we should take with some grain of salt, but it's 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 a decent bellwether of things. And it's fluctuated between maybe like six percentage points, five percentage points, uh, and 12 over the last uh, 18 months or so. And today it was at 11 for Democrats plus 11. Yeah. Hmm. Um, that's bad news. I don't know if it's an outlier of a poll cause it's been closer to six or seven, uh, recently, but so, I mean, if you, every day you're talking about the witch hunt, if every day you're saying, you know, crooked Hillary, they were t- chanting yeah. lock her up in West Virginia at his rally, which he did on the day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not only you had the Manafort conviction and the Michael Cohen plea deal, but you all said Michael Flynn had his sentencing postponed for a month because he's still cooperating. There's other stuff that we don't uh, know about. That's, that's part of the thing. There's plenty one, of things that we don't know. One of the things yet. that Camille yeah. gets frustrated with is that there's a lot of vaporware in the speculation about what comes next. And, and and a lot of fantasy wrapped up in it. And that's true. I think that there's a lot of, there's more tangible things happened this week than we've seen uh, in, in a long time. So it gives you something to, to actually talk about. But in this, in this political context to have uh, Trump out there and they're chanting lock her up, uh, it's you, you, your, your brain kind of explodes unless you're in the middle of it. And I just, as an aside, I was, uh, I did Kennedy that night and um, you know, people like to, uh, to dump on Fox, uh, uh, during moments of high stress. In fact, there was a, a bullshit meme that went around immediately and a lot of respected journalists were passing it around, which is like, you know, uh, ABC, uh, uh, Manafort Cohen, blah, blah, blah. Uh, CBS, Manafort Cohen, every single network. And at the bottom, it's like Fox. Uh, and they had a picture of Tommy Lauren um, saying that they're blaming Obama for ruining Christmas because of Festivus. And it's like, Okay, dudes, this is obviously not just a Photoshop. It's a Photoshop from last December about something that had nothing to do with this. Uh, however, having said that, as my throat clear, I was in Fox and you're in, you're waiting to go on Kennedy. You're watching the other two shows on the two TVs. So I have Tucker over here uh, and you have Lou Dobbs. God rest his soul. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. I, I was talking about immigration. Like, Lou, are you okay? Every single, uh, I'm just, I'll, I'm, I'm trying to be polite because I don't He's like want Dudley Moore and Arthur. Come on. Asshole media reporters who listen to this program on occasion. Don't fucking talk about no, it. No, uh, good media reporters who are listening to the show and picking up on things worthy of uh, calling you about. <laughs> Sorry, but that is. I would do the same thing. That's why you're a 
douchebag. Vice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Editor at Lice. large. <laughs> Living in a fucking library. Wow, it's getting thick in here. <laughs> Anywho, um, uh, no, it, it is amazing to watch uh, their uh, it, 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 in the moment response. Blue Dub's like, that's possibly the best speech I've ever seen. <laughs> I don't know when he became Tom Brokaw, but he did. Uh, yeah. I've ever seen any human give. Where's my eyes? Uh, I, did you put my eyes over there? I want speech. I don't know. It's like fucking Foster Brooks. And Tucker, Tucker has like uh, uh, God knows who on and uh, saying, you know, uh, the, the most important thing that we saw in the courtroom today is that none of this has to do with Donald Trump. And it's like, you, you know, Michael Cohen just said in open yeah. court under. So like you do have this uh, denial thing. So that denial thing that, that Trump has been hitting on so much to the point of caricature, that's repellent to the electorate. I do believe you're going to get your own people out. And he's been uh, reliant on that to solidify Republican support for him on Capitol yeah. Hill on, right. and all that. But it's not going to get him's people elected. You know, and then it yeah. goes to the House and he's screwed because he's lost the House. It, it, because the last time. That that uh, Trump and the Trump agenda had to face the American electorate. He was running against Hillary Clinton, so it actually seemed relevant. What they're relying on now, what Trump is relying on now, is the Republican—I won't say conservative—but the Republican version of what aboutism, and that's essentially lock her up. Clinton's emails are like you know you turn on Sean Hannity, which I don't do, but I, I you know consume it in clips one you know once in a while when it's on media or whatever the hell I'm watching. And these clips always have like, uh, you know, uh, that server. Uh, they never found that server there, did they? Like, what, what are you talking about? What it's happened like, oh, with Uranium I, I, I'm One? So, yeah, exactly. It's like QAnon uh, told me, uh, this is the thing. It's, it's this version of what, you know, the Chomskyites would do throughout the 70s and 80s. And you'd say, you know, that uh, Khmer Rouge was pretty bad. It's like, yeah, you know what was also bad was slavery. It's like, yeah, but there's a roiling genocide happening when a third of the population is being systematically executed because they wear glasses. Like, yeah, but, but slavery was bad. This is the modern version of that in a more compacted time frame. is that we are going to see now in the midterms that lock her up, lock her up, might appeal when Hillary Clinton is the candidate, but it then only appeals to that rock-ribbed, you know, 30%, 20% of the electorate, which will do whatever the president does and, and support him all the time. But in I, defense, yeah. in defense of, the, of their point of view, uh, which I don't subscribe to, but I interact with, um, is that it's the same FBI. It's sometimes the same people. I mean, Peter Strzok, who's a hate figure uh, there, uh, and he's now been fired. He was, I mean, a lot of people, he in particular, was involved both in the investigation to Hillary Clinton and what she did with her servers, and then also the what became the Mueller investigation. It's the same cast of characters. Um, and so when, when you're dealing with a small gene pool, it, it makes it, and you see the choices that they make. She got to talk with her investigators under conditions that were much more favorable than ones that have been proposed so far to Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So this is what sustained people's sense that there's a that there's more of an apples to apples uh, comparison here. The uranium one shit and all that kind of stuff is nonsense, I think, on stilts. Uh, I, I think where they're, they get closer to it. And then, well, that's also part of the problem is that every week it's a new thing. And most of those new things have been garbage. The one if they had been uh, stuck to some kind of message discipline about unequal treatment here and this one thing or these two things look strange mm -hmm. in the way that the investigation has happened, then they'd have a more persuasive. But, you case. know, you're hitting on this thing, which is the the other aspect 
of conservatives mimicking kind of old lefty talking points. And one is what about ism? And the other one is the fact that we are in a great rich era of conservative grievance politics. And it is true that the media as a whole and it's mainstream kind of way, I don't like that silly acronym, the MSM, but the mainstream media as a whole is much more hostile to Donald Trump than they would have been to Hillary Clinton. I think that's undeniable. I listen to NPR every day and I kind of chuckle at like, you know, look, I don't like the guy either, but come on guys, you know, at least <laughs> pretend. <laughs> WNYC. Uh, WNYC pretty, in particular. Oh goddamn, my God. It is kind of bananas, right? So that there, it's not a coincidence that, you know, Trump isn't very bright about these things. People think, you know, they always like 4D, 8D chess thing, but it doesn't take somebody with a very active mind to realize that the press stuff plays. When you say the press stuff and then the crowd roars and they turn around towards the press pit, which I saw multiple times when I was at Donald Trump events on mm-hmm. the campaign trail and during the, co- the Iowa caucuses and on, you know, various, various events in various states and they hiss and boo at you and everything. Now, like all you have to do is then you can up the ante and say, well, Jim Acosta is a buffoon. Well, yeah, of course he is. And he's like, I feel physically threatened as I take photographs with these people and like, you know, sign autographs and things. But that stuff resonates is like, you know, it is that victim culture. It's like we are this, this minority that is actually a majority. I mean, they're like, they're essentially, you know, Shia in Iraq. <laughs> like, why are these, why are these little uh, minority Sunni guys, ra- uh, you know, running and running all the th- stuff? Well, we're sitting here being oppressed by them. And they think of this media as this apparatus that's there to put the boot heel on their neck. That stuff works. That stuff is effective. And if Donald Trump wants to win, he should continue making the media the enemy. It is very effective. But the Hillary Clinton stuff, the locker up stuff, they're like, oh, they're they're all against us. You know, I mean, maybe the Limbaugh listeners and that kind of, you know, kind of thick vein of people that are obsessed with politics and will and they're obsessed in the way that they watch Mark or listen to Mark Levin. Hmm. Like there's no, you can't reason with people like that. Cause if you were somebody that was capable of reason in a political sense, and I'm not saying that they're, that they're idiots. I'm just saying they don't reason through kind of political issues. They are tribal. And there's, if they were reasonable in that sense, they wouldn't be listening to Mark Levin. They would listen to Rush Limbaugh. They wouldn't just be wedded to Fox news. There's nothing one can do to dislodge them from, from their politics in their worldview. But I think those people in the middle that voted for Donald Trump and maybe have a bit of buyer's remorse or don't know if they, I don't think the locker up stuff has any effect at this point. And actually it looks a bit pathetic. But does the sensational, does the sensational media coverage, does the, does the overly excited media coverage in certain circumstances that may not warrant it, does the promises that, wow, this could be it. This could, this could finally be it. Here's another tweet of a small miniature cannon. This is finally the thing that's going to sink him. <laughs> does all of that add up to something in the minds of those no, same people? No, absolutely not. And I think there are two different things here. Mm-hmm. The reason that those are the 20%, 30% that will never be swayed is because those are the 20 and 30% of people whose minds are affected by things like that. They see this war against Donald Trump. They see this war against conservatism or, mm-hmm. you know, flyover country and the rest of it. It's, there's an overlap there. there these, the Sean Hannity viewers still believe the whole Seth Rich conspiracy. Well, no, no, I'm actually, yeah. but I'm, I'm asking about the, the, the swing voters. So the swing voters, yeah. Yeah. I and would whether say. Whether or not they see look, that kind of hysteria. Think of it this way. If Donald. Are, are also sure. turned off. If think of it this way, if Donald Trump and his ilk and the the sort of Brent Bozells of the world and the people that do this sort of, you know, the right wing version of what David Brock does, the you know, media criticism, if they thought it had no effect, I don't think they would 
do it with such sort of vociferousness. Mm -hmm. They believe, and I think they're right to believe, that those people in that squishy middle are affected by media coverage. And if the media coverage is excessively negative about Donald Trump, they do believe, and I think they're right to believe this, that those kind of on-the-fence voters are affected in a way that pulls them away from Donald Trump. I think you have to be very politically motivated to see a vast conspiracy, mm -hmm. and you have to consume a lot. If you're a casual consumer of media, and you're just kind of in the background hearing that there's indictments, and this guy's flipping, and that guy's flipping, it has an effect on you, and, and the effect is away from Donald Trump. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that it, that it doesn't eventually have that. I do want to ask, Matt, because we were talking earlier about sort of the politics of all of this, and the fact that all of that factors into the potential for an actual uh, impeachment. Um, at the current moment, with respect to Cohen and the, the the fact that he plans to cooperate here and the fact that he's named Trump specifically and said that I did these bad things that were campaign finance violations and I did them at the direction of the president. At the moment, we don't actually know what proof he has to substantiate that claim. We do know that at this point, he has effectively lied under oath if what he's saying is not true. Um, but we don't know what proof he may, in fact, bring to bear. And we I guess know. we can go a, a step further because he's gone so far, his lawyer at least, has gone so far as to suggest that he might also have information with respect to that Russian meeting that took place in Trump Tower sure. um, and with respect to potentially broader um, broader involvement of the Trump the Trump campaign with the Russians with respect to the Clinton emails. He's at least intimated that he may, in fact, have knowledge of those things. It's certainly true that if he's lying, that's a big deal. He could lose all of the the the, the carrots that he has going for him. Um, but it's also true that he's facing pretty significant charges here, at least in terms of the volume of the charges. And he's got plenty of incentive to try to unravel some of the lies he told earlier on, which seem like obvious lies at this point with respect to, I, I paid the money and I paid the money out of my pocket because I love Donald Trump. That isn't true. You lied. More shit for you to dig yourself out from underneath. But in the short run here, should we really be making much of what is happening with Cohen being willing to turn on Trump? I think that uh, a key turning point here was in April um, when Cohen's office, his hotel room, everything associated with him got, got raided. Mm -hmm. um, and so suddenly the uh, uh, government had all kinds of access to attorney-client conversation, both uh, privileged conversation and non-privileged conversation, of which there was a lot, that not in a, an official um, – capacity as a lawyer, you and I are just bullshitting about about whatever. Right. Um, if, if you recall the timeline of it all uh, and look at the way that both Trump and the White House spokesman at the time and, and other people in Giuliani have talked about things, they changed their tune within days of that raid. Mm -hmm. So there is documentary evidence of something. We don't know what it is, uh, how much of it is there. Uh, we don't know how much of it might have any impact on the collusion, the Russian collusion aspect of the investigation. Part of the confusion here, uh, and I had, a, I had an interview, a, a great one uh, today on SiriusXM. I was uh, guest hosting uh, Shonem Seth, Sunem Seth, and Sheth, 
It's a terrible uh, name for me to pronounce because I'm a racist. Um, <laughs> uh, but a reporter for Business Insider, and I just spent 30 minutes uh, with her, who's been covering. I really thought that's who you were subbing for, and I was like, that's really offensive. Yeah, sure. No, it's <laughs> You're not going to be no subbing for them anymore. No matter what. Hey, yeah. media reporters. Uh, uh, <laughs> no, like uh, I, uh, I was, and I follow this stuff uh, with fair amount of closeness because you have to talk about it on, on the televisions. Um, but like, my God, the jurisdictional split. Why are we having two trials for Manafort? Why is this one over here in the uh, in the Southern District of New York? Is some of this because a potential pardon? You don't want uh, Trump to be able to pardon. It's it's super super confusing. And yeah. part of what she was saying is that the evidentiary uh, dump there, uh, there might be things of value that Lanny Davis was was pointing to, and almost certainly overhyping just because he's Lanny Davis uh -huh. representing Michael Cohen. Um, so that's all a pretty safe bet. Um, um, but there's a possibility that some of that stuff was not relatable uh, for that particular prosecution in New York, but has some applicability to the Mueller investigation. And so they're just saying, hey, Mueller, over here, we got we got some fancy Russia stuff for you uh, because they desperately want to get his what is it? Three to five a month, a years is, is the sentence that he agreed to more or less plea at um, uh, there. I think it's 46 to 63 months, something around those bands. And and uh, you can just uh, auto tune my voice and correct <laughs> that. Mm -hmm. um, like young thug can actually be done but, uh, yeah. later mm -hmm. later on. Um, but uh, Mueller has the ability to say, hey, look, he was really super uh, good to me. We can we can knock that down instead of three to five years, make it one to two or, or something like that. Um, so uh, to long answer your question is just that, yes, he's a liar and he's full of crap. But also, yes, the government has an uh, as an inordinate amount of his communications, and that's already shown to change his behavior mm -hmm. uh, and Donald Trump's behavior and their approach to various things and their public statements about various things. So it leads me to think that even if they're exaggerating what comes next, there's um, something there's that they, something. they might have. They might have something of, of influence. But the overall thing is that, as, as Ken White Popat wrote in The New York Times, uh, Mueller, for the most part, has been quiet. Everyone else is noisy. Mm -hmm. So um, when people speculate, including people who defend Trump and say, hey, there's no Russia collusion here. I didn't see collusion. I didn't see Russia here. What, what is this? It's a bimbo payout. Yeah. True. Totally true. Um, you know, Trump got in trouble for his dick before he got in trouble for Russia in, um, from a legal standpoint, for sure. But we don't know what the end of this is. We don't know what the final report that Mueller is going to give to Congress and whether we have uh, a reason to believe that Cohen has new information that's going to make that report more convincing to people and the public at large. Copy. Um, I mean, one thing that we talked about briefly at the end of the last podcast was the John Brennan situation um, and Donald Trump revoking his security clearance. This was something that was a, a significant issue last week. There are plenty of people who were saying that Donald Trump has lost it and he's abusing his power. But one of the things I also remember John Brennan saying when he was sort of responding to all of this publicly um, in a piece that I believe he wrote for The New York Times, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Was The Times where that appeared? I think Probably. so. No? I think Maybe. so. Um, but in the piece for the Times, he actually said that the president's claims that he hasn't colluded, um, that something has totally happened here and that his claims that he hasn't colluded are bogus. And when he went on to further explain, I believe it was on Meet the Press this past weekend, um, he suggested that the reason he said that wasn't so much because of things that he was seeing as a consequence of his access to intelligence, but it was because of what he was reading in the papers, that the media had unearthed enough 
for him to believe that something like collusion had taken place here. He had a very similar thing to say about his accusation, uh, accusation of treason. Uh, of Trump's, yeah, which uh, he said Trump's he didn't say. Right. But then he did say, yeah. Totally said it on Rachel Maddow, w- walked it back and said it wasn't based on his special secret information. James Clapper does the same shit, says incredibly outrageous stuff. Hey, look, I used to be in charge of everything. And man, he's, you know, he's in cahoots with Russia. It's like, really? So you must know something. Like, yeah, I, I was watching MSNBC and uh, and you know, Rachel Maddow uh, showed me that. It would North be Korea it would be the- interesting if somebody who actually has a security clearance at that level would tell us what that means. If that means intelligence briefings, which I know it does mean that you can have access to those things. But if it, it doesn't mean like you have a library card that you still have <laughs> from NYU because you did undergraduate there, you can go take out books. I don't think... It's as if John Brennan is showing up and being like, guys, I'm going to just going to be in the back room there looking through some stuff. I'll see you in a bit. No one's logging this. And it doesn't I, and I don't think that's what it is. Well, I his, mean, his explanation seemed to be that it's a I don't consequence know, of him being able to consult with people who currently work at the agency and who call him and say, hey, we need some advice. They can't even do that because there are plenty of things that perhaps pertain to sources and methods and various other things they also, that they these, can't share any longer. These ex-dudes often sit on advisory boards, sure, like defense advisory boards that will put together kind of like blue ribbon commissions to study how we got things wrong. Well, that's actually what Donald Trump said is that you're and a bunch of people that are close to him. Uh, we're saying that you're making money off of this. I mean, you remember that? He said, you know, you sit on all these things and you, you, you sort of, you know, weaponize this intelligence and then you actually make money off of it too. Right, with, with uh, consulting. With outside consulting of, outside things. Outside of just being on an advisory and board. I mean, the to- thing, totally true. Right? Which, which, if, which, true. which <laughs> if he had such a clear security clearance, he would be bragging about, hey, I'm just working with the system that it was provided to yeah. me. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other, the Four other, million of these people out there. The other, mm-hmm. the other mm-hmm. thing that I find uh, pretty interesting about this is that I, I don't have a, a tremendous amount of sympathy for the president or the administration is that, is that look, and, and again, I sound like a broken record, this. When you first get into office and you go to CIA headquarters and even before that on the campaign trail and you wage war against the intelligence community and then you have this expectation that they're going to act with the professionalism that you don't possess and that they are going to be incredibly nice to you and that they are not going to leak things. They're not going to say bad things about you and they're not going to use their security clearances to give you a hard time when you are denouncing them as the most incompetent people in a government full of incompetent people. You should be kind of expecting expecting this in a way. And does it make it right if people are, are using their security clearances to wage war on the president? No. Oh, but it doesn't mean that it's not expected, right? I mean, you don't do that sort of thing and expect there to be no consequences. And Donald Trump, in the world that he used to inhabit, where he was the king of, you know, real estate and he could crush people and would call people up and say, this is Donald Trump's right-hand man. What was the name that he used? I can't uh, remember. Anthony he, would probably know. He named one of his kids that. What's the youngest uh, uh, one's name? Barron? Uh, Barron. Barron. Uh, John Barron. John, John Barron, yeah. yeah. So John Barron would call, and then he, this is the way that you get out of these things in the past, right? You could run the narrative, and it's like, what Donald Trump <laughs> wasn't smart enough to realize was that when you do this in a huge bureaucratic a, a place like the U.S. government in which people want to defend their patch because they're defending their job and their livelihood and their department, and you start attacking them, there's no John Barron that can call up somebody and make it go away or wage this war in which you always win. This may be true, but you're kind of making me sympathetic to Donald Trump, right? Isn't there a, a Camillist uh, argument sure. to say here that he smoked him out? So yeah, sure, he came in and called them all Nazis. Maybe that was a little bit hyperbolic. Maybe not, man. Yeah. 
I was listening to Noam Chomsky. I think uh, they're really onto something uh, here. But no, by by picking a fight um, and sort of provoking uh, that behavior, doesn't that kind of show that there is an entrenched bureaucracy there that will abuse its privileges to go after? No, I think it means that when you attack people in such vicious language, they tend to respond. Yeah. And they'll do it like, you know, this happens in private companies too. If somebody is out there saying something about the company and you're from a different faction of the company, you'll go out there and say something, you know, through cutouts and the rest of it. It's like, this is just happening with the intelligence community. And I know, like, I want to be like Greenwald and these guys and say like, you know, these guys, the power has to be kept in check and they shouldn't be abusing these privileges. And, you know, you see what happens when Snowden releases these documents is what happens. The NSA is this huge thing that they can spy on you, et cetera. It is kind of Orwellian in that sense. But don't be surprised that they are doing this when you can very easily not provoke that by just keeping your head beneath the parapet yeah. about these issues. You can wage war on them privately, as every president in the past has done for various factions, but doing that publicly was something that roused in the intelligence community and other communities too, it's not just the intelligence community, that said like, no, no, this is not how it's done. Trump's we, never had to work in a system that has pre-existed him. Yes, like, like that's, when it, when, that's like, true. Yeah, that's like, a very good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. When, when, whenever he did business, you know, with bureaucracies, he bullied them. He strong-armed them. And if he lost, he would flail and kick and try to find another another enemy to fight. And yeah, not never, Yeah, exactly. But he never had. You know, he never had to exist in something that predated him. But this is strange because what what you gentlemen are saying actually sounds as if it would be a perfect context in which some sort of deep state conspiracy would take place. What actually seems to be unfolding is far more banal and keystone cops than all of them. I think that it's the Trump administration uh, yeah. tripping all over yeah, itself, that's right. having associated itself with really, really dodgy characters who in many cases are being prosecuted for either telling very stupid, idiotic, obvious lies, um, changing their story midstream, getting in trouble for shit that they had done years earlier in some cases. Um, and when in Michael Cohen's case in particular, this is, I think, explicitly the thing that comes closest to Trump in terms of someone having having done something wrong and getting indicted for it in this instance, especially in this place, in this case, because he is saying explicitly that Donald Trump instructed me to break these laws. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, the candidate. That's so, my favorite euphemism. The candidate, I did this at his behalf. Yeah, which but is that's the closest. But yeah. what I'm saying, though, is just with the deep state stuff, I'm, I'm just, where is the, where is the part of this where it's them kind of working against Trump, at least in a way that that seems obvious, because I, I don't I don't see it. I don't either. And I think that that the problem with that phrase, which is is supposed to be kind of redolent of, you know, like a spine, like John le Carre spine novel yeah. of like, you know, the circus in, in MI5, they're going, they're gone rogue, is that it's the word deep. It's that qualifier. It's just the state. I mean, this, I mean sure, people sure. in the state. Uh, in various, you know, parts of the government, if you keep kicking sand in their face, they're going to be like, you know, fuck you, I'm going to kick back. And so it's not surprising. I'm not saying, again, it's not objectionable right, right. or whatever. But, you know, Don, and, and again, these people that Donald Trump staffed his campaign with and associated himself with are the type of people that will this kind of investigation into happening. I was one of the couple times that I sat down for on-camera stuff with, with, um, um, Roger Stone, um, I, I, I mean, this is out there. He's he said this, but I think before you're we talking, I, I asked him, said, you know, how did you meet Trump? What was that? You know, where, where did this come from? Where is the genesis of this relationship? And I, I believe that Stone has talked about this in the past, but he said that, you know, I was a lobbyist and I was doing my thing. 
And Donald Trump- Working with Paul Manafort. Working with Paul Manafort. Of course. And Donald Trump wanted, and I can't remember where it was, there was some harbor- um, maybe it was Atlantic City or something, and he couldn't dock his boat there because the regulation was that it had to be deep to the water had to be, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, his boat was too big for it or whatever. And he wanted, That's what she said, and he, oh God. And then he, he wanted the government to change the state government, whatever, to change that policy. And he went to Roger Stone to do that. And Roger Stone successfully did that for Donald Trump. Now, this is a man who's going to come in and clean up Washington. Then his interaction with somebody <laughs> like Roger Stone, who is the hatchet man to end all hatchets, started with Roger Stone getting a regulation changed so he could park his boat. Now I got to look up and remember if that is exactly right, but it's something very similar. It was Atlantic City. It and was it, the Marina Atlantic City. It was the Marina Atlantic City. Is that is that public? Is that was? Did you find that online? It's on Slate. It's on Slate. So Roger Stone told me this story before we were shooting, and um and it's like yeah that's how I mean this is what happens when you get a bunch of these guys in there yeah and the, there's a different version of this. Slate is doing this podcast. Speaking of Slate, they're doing this podcast now. Uh, slow burn. The first uh, slow burn. Uh, first season was about uh, Watergate. It was actually not very good. And they, the first episode had, was on John Mitchell and it got a million things wrong. But it was this kind of young guy and he goes through Watergate. The new one is about Clinton. The second episode, which I listened to today, was about Vince Foster and it was about the Travelgate uh, scandal, mm. comparing this to previous scandals. And the interesting thing about Travelgate, which very few people remember, but I remember reading about it contemporaneously in the American Spectator, which yeah, was, you know, maybe. really the muckraking. Arkansas Project. Arkansas Project, uh, funded by Richard Mellon Scaife, I yeah. believe. Um, but the funny thing about this, the way they presented, I think it's about right, is there were all of these Arkansas cronies and friends mm-hmm. that were brought in to government who were effectively incompetent. Yeah. And the woman who brought this up that, oh, the Travelgate people are conspiring against the Clinton administration, we have to fire them all, was some person that Clinton knew from Arkansas who was not very bright and got it wrong. And, you know, Vince Foster didn't know what he was doing and, you know, ends up killing himself. So they say. (laughs) Ends up actually killing himself. The Clinton uh, murder machine. Because because, uh, he got in wherever his head. And there is the incompetence of people like the uh, people that were in the early days of the Clinton machine that became very competent and became Washington insiders but or they, the ones they that were ca- bumbling. At, you're right. They were totally bumbling, bumbling. outsiders. And, yeah. and all of the press at the time was like, you know, these hicks are coming. to. That is exactly what this episode of Slow Burn, the episode two, is like, is talking to people like Ruth Marcus, who who's now an opinion columnist, the Washington Post was covering it for the for the Post at the time before she was an opinion columnist. And she was talking about this and other people were like, yeah, I, I, and, you know, Webb Hubble, who was ended up going to prison. Uh, Webb Hubble said, you know, we used to have these Arkansas nights to feel better about ourselves because everyone thought we were just a bunch of silly hillbillies and outsiders. And that we used to kind of console each other about this versus what you see now, which is these you know, the drain the swamp thing, Mm -hmm. which is these old crony scumbags that, you know, um, you know, Paul Manafort, who's been stealing money and taking money from scumbags and dictators and the rest of it for for a very long time. Decades. Roger Stone, who will do anything for for a buck and, you know, is a hatchet man and and, and gleefully refers to himself as a political hatchet man and a a Richard Nixon tattoo in the middle of his back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Go down the list. I mean, I remember uh, this uh, just provoked a, a, a suppressed memory of 
getting wasted with Helen Thomas in oh, God. January 1994, uh, the uh, legendary UPI uh, front row uh, correspondent uh, who always asked the first question for uh, yeah. 20, 30 years at every yeah. White House. And always said, thank you, Mr. President, at the end, right? Yeah. She So uh, she was in, in Prague in January of 1994 because Bill Clinton was visiting, and I was working for UPI uh, in addition to our little paper out there. And so was covering all the stuff. This is when uh, the Partnership for Peace was being uh, unveiled, which is yeah. the precursor to NATO. Um, uh, I think it's a parallel thing to NATO because it still exists. Because I, I know Sweden. Well, partnership is, yeah. is like the it's yeah. the it's the 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 the, the adjunct room. Yes. Uh, that you can go and step yeah. into before you get into yeah. the big boys club. So they were just starting that process there. And uh, so long day work sit down with Helen Thomas and she's awesome. She's got like green combat boots. She's got like a, a orange hat. She's about four foot one. Uh, she's like, let's get another bottle of wine. You know, yeah. She's totally in there yeah. slugging it down. And, um, and it's a, a don't remember treat. a single thing she ever wrote though. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Including her autobiography, which is really not good. Uh, but, uh, mm. uh, I was asking, you know, to give, give some historical sweep on Clinton and because she's been covered, she had been at that time, uh, God rest her soul, uh, had been covering every White House since JFK, I believe. Yeah. Uh, and she said Bill Clinton is by far the worst president. Hmm. And she included Nixon in, in this thing. Uh, he has brought disgrace on this office. And the uh, it was about Travelgate and it was about the bumpkins from Arkansas coming in. That's funny. And they don't know, uh, you know how we do things here in Washington. Yeah. And they show up late when you're supposed to be on time. Clinton was notorious for that. Uh, and all this kind of stuff. And they're very imperial. Hillary especially is very imperious with the way that she throws her things around. So it's very interesting to see how, like, Washington just has an allergy to people coming. I mean, you heard a little bit about this with Obama. There was just, like, the, uh, the, the their mantra was to not make new friends, right? They had their Chicago people, like six people, yep. who hung out. They didn't make new friends. And they were kind of treated isolately cool but they didn't necessarily come in and rip up everything with all of their friends in the way that kind of Clinton did with Arkansas no, and Trump yeah. does with like Manhattan real estate and bullshit. I, I want to move away from this stuff and, and perhaps get to some other things quickly. But I, I, I want to ask one question of the room briefly and hopefully succinctly with respect to the Mueller investigation. Is there any general overriding concern not overriding as in more important, but just kind of in the ether above all of this that that at least is there in the back of your minds with respect to this notion of there being kind of these perpetual investigations that have a pretty wide, seemingly unlimited scope and an ability to turn over rocks and the the threat that it may pose to polity, the potential for abuse that might exist in a system like that. We have conversations now about whether or not the president will be an unindicted co-conspirator um, on one of these trials, which is kind of a, a curious sort of thing to find yourself saddled with because you don't really get a chance to defend yourself in a circumstance like that. And it's one thing when it happens to someone as loathsome as Donald Trump. There are plenty of things to, to hate about him. It's one thing when it happens to Paul Manafort. Um, but there is something about this machine where it really could imaginably be used in some pretty deleterious ways by nefarious characters to accomplish bad ends. Is that 
Is that something that you guys are at all concerned about? And is that something that that you've actually seen folks talking about? I've certainly seen it like at the margins, but yeah, there doesn't mostly, seem to be any mostly broad interest in that. Yeah, I mean, you should always be concerned about these things, especially when there's, you know, somebody who has this much power and not answerable to a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I mean, I think the length of this investigation in which people are complaining about is not abnormal. Sure. It's not abnormal in the sense of the Clinton investigation. It's way shorter. It's than not, not abnormal. When they, like, but it ain't the, over yet. The, sure. The, the, you know, the Nixon investigation, yeah. et cetera. And it's not an independent counsel. Like, it, yeah. he has less sweep and authority. Right. It has yeah. to be. And the, the pr essentially him not getting fired is more a matter of, sort of public pressure on the president that prevents him from doing this and not a matter of him it being impossible he can for fire him, him to tomorrow. check him. Yeah, I mean, he here. can fire him tomorrow. And it's it's one of the things that's interesting about this is that, you know, to in in kind of defense of, of, of uh, some of the people on Trump's side who have to, you know, deal with this idea of the dark night of fascism that is falling upon the land <laughs> is that you have, you know, again, as we said, the first two supporters in Congress being indicted today. And, you know, the, 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 the um, you know, um, the investigation is sort of going forward, Manafort and Cohen, you know, they're probably both, there's a possibility they both go to jail, et cetera. It seems entirely uh, It seems entirely At least likely. for a little while. At least for a little Cohen, while. Yeah. And it's that the, you know, and I'm just wondering if the, if the president's supporters will make the fascism kind of call in the other way, that the deep state is this kind of fascist machine. I think they brings, already are. I mean, people, people, but, but I mean, this idea of when we had Tim Snyder in the show that, yeah. you know, this president is unaccountable and he's going to roll over all the institutions and the institutions right now are rolling over him. So far, uh, this will come to some kind of head, whether it's over a subpoena, whether he starts to fire people that, uh, that, uh, uh, freak people out. I go on a radio show, Alan Nathan, the militant moderate, uh, his theory uh, <laughs> here, uh, and he's gone uh, totally into the Trump defense corner. Yeah, which, moderate. Which yeah. <laughs> he thinks that uh, Trump uh, can, should, and right, righteously should um, uh, refuse to comply with subpoena, even if the Supreme Court tells him to. Um, and that if the response from the House is to impeach him, he should defend himself in the Senate. Um, on the floor, on the grounds that this is all a, a witch hunt and it's partisan Democrat deep state stuff uh, against him, and that he would probably prevail in that because it's a co-equal branch, um, you know. And that's completely and, insane. And he's the president, and he oversees Robert Mueller, so it's like all all fair game. Uh, I, I think it's a that, very moderate position to strike out. That's it, kind of more Roy, militant. Yeah, that's it's that's Roy, a little more militant than moderate. Yeah, that's Roy Moore's <laughs> position. When Roy Moore was fired for, as, as <laughs> chief justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. I appreciate Alan, uh, Alan Nathan, and I hope I'm not misrepresenting his position uh, if he hears that. But it's a pretty strong out there uh, uh, kind of thing. I think that the worry is, uh, to get to Camille's sense of worry, is that are we at some point just going to criminalize opposition or criminalize power? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are uh, Paul Krugman said uh, essentially that, hey, look, you know, Donald Trump's going to get four um, uh, nominees to the Supreme Court or there was some what, what Brett Kavanaugh is going to be by definition illegitimate because, uh, you know, uh, this investigation hangs over a razor thin election. If he had not done, if he had not broken the law, the uh, election would have gone the other way. He wouldn't have this pick. So that pick is going to be illegitimate. And there's, I mean, there's, there's a whole lot of Democrats who believe that two uh, recent elections, 2000 and 2016, are fundamentally illegitimate. So are a use, use, is that helping uh, by 
saying that this is illegitimate out there? And are we getting to a point where you just, whenever you have the, the enough power, you're going to criminalize whoever wins? Yeah. Try to rake them through of the course. polls. Of is, course. Is that with our, with our, you know, kind of partisan spread that's happening, is that the future? That but, but, but here's the thing about this, and I always find this interesting when I look at, you know, news stories coming out of every other country that is not the U.S. or Canada. And, I mean, this is even the U.K., Western European countries. The stuff that happens in, you know, other sort of democracies that would be appalling here in the United States suggests to me that the United States democracy is is fairly strong compared to the rest. Think of the every parliamentary system they don't they don't finish their term like the prime minister like there's always gridlock there's always like a collapse of the government. Sure. Australia like I don't think the yeah prime Malcolm Turnbull was, might not yeah. even make it through the week or you know who knows I don't think an Australian prime minister has finished a term in like two decades. No, I mean Italy is the same way. There are like fifty six yeah. governments in the first fifty years after the, the Second World War, and this is like instability in other countries is de rigueur. It's what you're used to, whereas you know, here is that, like, look, you should be preparing your defense if you're Donald Trump and you're the Republican Party and you're people who support the president for the worst possible case scenario. Because, Civil war? well, more, <laughs> no, I mean, we're so far from that. I, I and know. People are panting about what's yeah. happening now. Yeah. Mm. And it's like not to, you know, employ the the Tip O'Neill cliche that politics ain't beanbag, but it ain't. I mean, come on. Sure. The, I, this idea like, oh my God, the deep state. It's like, guys, I hate again to do this too. It's like, you know, what if it was President Obama? What if it was this? You know, you did this to Bill Clinton. It's like, this is the nature of politics. You do what you can get away with so the other guy loses. And the reason you do that is because you went into politics with such a fervor about your own beliefs and that the righteousness of those beliefs that anybody else beliefs that encroach upon those are the exact opposite mean an existential crisis for democracy. So you will do whatever it is, left, right, or militantly moderate, to <laughs> protect your patch. And I, this pearl clutching is so ridiculous. And I don't believe that anyone actually believes it. They don't really, oh my God, this is that democracy is under threat. If, if they did, they might act differently. About Ex it. Of course, it's exactly right. If democracy was actually under threat, if there was fascism, I would hope that these people that go on television and, and you know, hyperventilate about it would be at the barricades with whatever bolt action right rifle they could find in their, you know, grandfather's basement because you should defend against those things. And this is what happened actually, you know, in the, the, the years uh, predating the German, uh, German fascist takeover was people fighting and killing each other in the street. There was, you know, hundreds of deaths every year in streaming. That is not happening for a reason because people don't really believe what they say about it. They don't believe that the government is so sinister and mustache twisting in the deep state. They believe that there's problems with it and the NSA and the rest of it. And it's scary. And people write about this and, you know, Edward Snowden leaks doc documents and there's debates about it on the floor and, and, and on television. But at the same time, if we thought this was something that threatens the very fabric of American democracy, and people do believe that, one would hope that Antifa would be the beginning of it. That, and I know that sounds crazy, but like, if you believe that we're at that point, then fight for it. If you believe that, you know, American, I mean, the guy that went out in that, that, that Antifa thing in Portland with an American flag saying, you know, 
fuck Donald Trump, America is better than this, and he got beaten. <laughs> Bernie supporter. Bernie, yeah, yeah, Bernie's got beaten who, who by wanted it. to co-opt yeah. the American flag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a symbol of patriotism. Yes. From the alt-right. Yeah. Was beaten in the back of the head with a club. In <laughs> fairness, Amazing. if you bring a flag <laughs> to an event in Portland. Come on. Oh, my Come God. On. I, swear, I swear to God, do you know what? Well, our, pal, ja- our, our, our pal Jacob Siegel said the same thing happened to an old woman holding an American flag in Boston sure. last year. Yeah, yeah you know Boston. what? Boston you know what ensures safe American passage place. through that that rally in Portland? A Cuban flag. <laughs> a Venezuelan flag. I think it's just the red flag with the hammer and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. People are like, oh, that's great. Where'd you get that? You get those <laughs> they might, they actually might mistake the Cuban flag for like a Texas flag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> beat you up either way. Yeah. Like star. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, speaking, speaking of outrage, um, the one thing that did pop up to um, this week as well is this case of the Rutgers professor who is uh, facing some punishment from the university as a consequence of an outrage mob. The contours of this story, however, are a little bit different than many of the other campus outrage stories in that the people who have ginned this up do appear to be conservatives. Uh, There Mm -hmm. is a a white professor who wrote several sarcastic, I believe it was two actually, so it would be a couple and not several, which suggests there's around about three, but two different sarcastic Facebook posts, one in which he quote, hereby resigns from my race. Um, not like Camille resigns from all say. race <laughs> nonsense, yeah. but resigning from his white race uh, because of uh, Caucasian assholes, as he put it. Um, the punishment that he actually received from the university was a consequence of him violating community standards on quote, unquote, hate speech. Mm-hmm. Um, this is totally absurd, like almost laughably absurd. Racial But harassment. for the fact that it has like real tangible why consequences you, why in this guy's life. That's, that's the ruling? Why do you harass him? Why that's still a well, thing, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Why, why shouldn't it be a thing? I, I don't, I don't want to... Con- no, I mean, I'm, I've, I've introed the story yeah. here. I'm so, set it up. So uh, the, the gentleman in, in question, I don't know if he lives in Harlem or mm. was just having lunch in Harlem. He lives in Harlem. Set about he in, all right, so, so, so yeah. he's got it rough enough that he's a professor at Rutgers and he lives in Harlem. He's got <laughs> That's a, a bit of a commute. It's right? a long yeah. commute. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, um, I actually actually used to live in that neighborhood and uh, frequented these establishments. And I did not was not bothered as much as this guy was by, you know, obnoxious Columbia students or whoever, whomever, you know, acting the fool in any particular dining establishment. But this guy, I don't know that I necessarily agree with this guy's sentiment that it's his job to police who is behaving like what at any particular establishment. Uh, and acting as though it's his job to say that these are establishments that don't belong to white people and therefore he's going to make a show of being publicly publicly embarrassed by them. That said, the guy mouthed off on Facebook on his personal account, made a couple of sarcastic jokes, and it was seized upon by a right-wing outrage mob, particularly the Daily Caller. And quite a few... More mainstream outlets took the bait. Newsweek, which is basically a clickbait farm at this point, but effective. They, they, they it was effective in grabbing this bait, in putting out a headline uh, that reads: "Rutgers professor quote unquote resigns from white race after Harlem run-in with Caucasian assholes." Mm. Um, quote unquote. Yeah, quote unquote. Yes, and USA Today's, uh, you know, one of the, one, oh, it's not a, probably Gannett's, uh, My Central Jersey, ran with a similar thing. 
And this was enough to make a public university like Rutgers say, you know what, this is not worth our trouble to even do anything other than our pro forma following of our guidelines, which are absurdly broadly written. And we must come down on this guy for racial harassment because it does technically meet those guidelines. Now, these guidelines may be absurd in their own right. But the uh, the Daily Caller absolutely cynically ginned up this thing. Uh, I don't think as a particularly um, principled political statement, but, but just because it would, you know, stoke outrage and generate clicks. And it did. And, and own a lib. It did. It certainly owned a lib. <laughs> at least at least uh, one. But, you know, I mean, you know, like, again, this is not, this is not this is not to make any like, you know, there's not there's no there's no monstrous mic drop here. But the idea that it's only one side of the political aisle that uh, cynically will generate outrage to make a cynical political point is proven. The lie is proven here. I, I am I am going to be maybe slightly heterodox in this and say, good. I'm glad it's happening to him. Mm. I could give a shit. And the reason is, is this. I think what's happening to him is wrong. Mm. I think it's, it, is, it is outrageous that somebody's personal political views, no matter how stupid they are, are leading to him, his censure or his firing from the university or whatever it might be. Um, but I don't care because, you know, I'd like to ask this guy, judging from the stuff that I read about, what he thinks about when this happens to a Milo Yiannopoulos or one of these other people that are there to gin up outrage and say outrageous things, too. I guarantee you mm-hmm. uh, the people that are defending him are, and there's a great segue here, which I'll get to in a second, that are defending him and saying this is crazy would say the same thing if the professor had political opinions of a different yes. direction. So I don't feel too much sympathy for people people or a university or and kind of ideological faction who, you know, when they're hoisted by their own petard, I don't care because mm-hmm. you guys are the ones that create this thing. The people who are defending him, which he should be defended. And again, this is a kind of a slightly complicated thing that I agree with fire, mm-hmm. which by the way is an organization who is defending this guy. Mm-hmm. And I, I dislike the fact that it's, it's uh, frequently referred to as, as some sort of conservative organization. It just used that way because a lot of these outrages on campus tend to focus uh, on conservatives and conservative speech when it's on liberal speech. I think that they should be defended right. as, as, as vigorously as fire is defending them. But at the same time, I mean, Maybe the people, I don't know, Newsweek's a click farm and the other, maybe the people who brought this uh, to the attention of, of um, you know, whatever, Daily Call or whoever it was, um, was doing so to say, hey, let's see if they run this guy out of town. And then when they realized that they were going to run him out of town, they should then stay, so- say stop and say, you know, hey. We defend him as much as everybody else. Sure. And this is why these policies are wrong, because you think they're only going to affect your political enemies and they're going to affect your allies. That'd too. be great if they did that. If they did that. I that's mean, what I'm saying. What, but, in, my, in my Twitter feed, the, the response when I when I tweeted this out this morning, the response was mostly like, you know, as you might expect, hey, the libs do it. This, you know, turnabout's fair play. There's, there's really no, there's really no like, hey, we've proven our point. No, that, hey, because that first clause is right, but there's a second clause that they're missing is that, you know, they do it and look, it's happening to them. And then the next clause, it shouldn't happen to anyone. Yeah. And, yeah. but, the, but I, my favorite thing about this was his comment because apparently Professor Livingston is his name. 
um, lives in Harlem, and he was expressing frustration with the gentrification of his neighborhood. And this is the quote. Yes, because he didn't participate in No, no, no. But this, no, 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 no. Not only that is that this is the type of person who becomes a professor at Rutgers, somebody who is this utterly clueless, who wrote, okay, officially, I now hate white people. I am white people, for God's sake. But can we peep them, us, out of my neighborhood? <laughs> uh, okay. Can we, it's, uh, like it's like uh, the end of Chinatown. It's my sister, my daughter. Yeah. <laughs> but can we keep, and one more time, can we keep them, us, out of my neighborhood? <laughs> and it's amazing. That, that is the thing. It is the thing about gentrification, this kind of argument, you see, is that nobody, you can live in Williamsburg, you know, the, for people who aren't from New York, the very kind of hipster, gentrified, uh, neighborhood in Brooklyn that, you know, in the 70s was the place where Frank Serpico was shot during a bad heroin deal. Um, they say, oh my God. It's not was... funny when Frank Serpico gets shot. No, no, it's Fisher hilarious. Laugh. Um, but it's, the thing is, is um, can, by the way, can you think of Fra Frank Serpico and not Al Pacino? Because I can't. Not, uh, not, uh, I, uh, I can, but only because we have a, a tangential relationship with one another. Oh God. So well, we're not going to talk uh, about that. No, we're going to talk about that in a second. No. But the funny thing about it is they, they always, people always say, People that got twelve hundred dollar rents in Williamsburg are now lamenting the gentrification of this now twenty eight hundred dollar rents or thirty five hundred dollar rents, and they say, you know, twenty years ago I was here, and I'm like, yeah, but, but, but you started it, okay? There was just like Puerto Ricans and some Polish people from Greenpoint, and then you came in, but nobody ever thinks they're it. They're not gentrification because they're cool and they know about it. I definitely think Despite I'm the fact that they're of part of the wave. That was Jeremiah Moss's whole book. I yeah. came here in 1993, so I'm good. Yeah. But yeah. anyone who came after yeah. me ruined this whole goddamn thing. So what it yeah. is, it's the murder rate. If it's at a certain level and you move in, you're not a gentrifier. Well, the you're, murder rate will always else. be, you know. But if it's sufficiently, if it's sufficiently low then you can move in. Well, yeah, it's, it, you, you have to prove that you were brave enough to yeah. endure certain hardships yeah. that nobody else had to do. Then it can truly be It was yours. just like, there was that viral video a couple of years ago. Remember the, the, the white guy who yelled at the other couple of white people? In Brooklyn? Oh, in, he was like, in downtown Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. He, he was like pointing at them and, and calling them something. What, what, what was and it, yeah, and he was and he was like, I'm fucking Magellan. I was here for... Yeah, I discovered this. Uh, it, was, it was funny. He's a jogger, but he was mad at like a couple with a stroller. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Stro they're, stroller they're the problem. Up. Yeah, this yeah. is like the rock, paper, scissors of the Brooklyn bourgeoisie. It's like, you know, paper covers rock. You have a stroller, I'm jogging. Um, but anyway, the segue of that is, uh -huh. is, is something else we talked about in the email, mm. which I read this time. Shocking. Is, um, you know, people, people uh, uh, it coming back and boomeranging on them uh, is uh, the girlfriend or the girlfriend of the late Anthony Bourdain, yes. Asia Argento. Argento? It's Argento. Argento. It's Argento? Dario Argento's daughter. Uh, okay, yeah, that's right. The, the director, yeah. yeah. Um, it was like a horror director. Of a yeah, horror made films. Suspiria, one of the greatest yeah, movies that's of all right. time. And uh, she uh, was uh, outed by the New York Times of paying a settlement of 300-odd, $350,000 to a young boy that she that he, he accused her of um, sleeping with him when he was 14, uh, 17, 17, sorry, 17. 17. I want to get that right. 17, and they were shooting a film together. No, 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 no. Your, your timeline's a little off. They shot a film together when he was a child. Yes. And when he was and he played mother to, to yeah. yeah. And when he was 17, they had an encounter in a hotel room. Yes. And an encounter in which she said, okay, send your family away. Here's some booze. I'm going to take off your pants. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, uh, supposedly. His supposedly, point of view. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and so he... Uh, 
claims that he was outraged by her taking the the sort of pole position in the Me Too movement, uh, saying she was uh, raped by Harvey Weinstein. I know that didn't come out the way I thought it was going to. I really didn't think about it, to be honest. But uh, she's, come on, man. So she goes out and uh, he's like, I'm offended because you did that to me. And then uh, according to him, I think that Bourdain was the one that kind of orchestrated. According to her. According to her. According to her that Bourdain uh, orchestrated the settlement. Of suggested she pay, yeah, yeah, yeah because, pay him off to pay she, silence. He was worried that the kid was dangerous somehow, and that yeah, it would like it would blow up in a bad and, way. And and worth noting, the payment was over three hundred thousand dollars. And according to court documents, after Bourdain's death, he was only worth about a million dollars at yeah. the time of his death. Yeah, so yeah, is, yeah. There's yeah, there's some murkiness in that, but it was yeah. it was a lot of money. And so the thing that's interesting about this is that she became friends with Rose McGowan, another kind of, you know, leader of, of the movement. And Rose McGowan then tweets like um, her disappointment that, uh, you know, she's been kind of scammed by this woman who is Mrs. Me Too, but herself was was accused of sexually assaulting. Uh, somebody who was 17 years old. And he, as he claims, screwed up his life and he couldn't get acting parts after that. I don't understand quite the argument there. But either way, you saw a number of people, herself included, and this is the kind of bridge of this uh, to the previous story, of, you know, people being slightly more circumspect when it comes for them, right? I mean, the revolution sometimes eats its own. And at this point, she says, look, you know, I mean, this is crazy. He, you know, is broke and, and he was just exploiting me and he needed money. And this is a false charge. And these false charges should be adjudicated. But it was done in this horrible way. And you're sitting there reading this going, yeah. Where have we seen right. that before? That's about right. Yeah. I think she's right. I think she's right about that. And that's kind of a, the funny thing about it is the number of people that have that hopped on the bandwagon. And a few, by the way who were her supporters of Me Too, have said, um, and I have to look up who they were, who said, hey, 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 let's not get ahead of ourselves here. It's a settlement. It's an allegation, but we don't know the whole story. Even Rose McGowan uh, made a, a couple of notes like that. Yeah, she, uh, she did too. It wasn't just a pure uh, a vitriol. And then uh, today, if, if you've seen the picture, I presume, sorry, uh, uh, that after she had sent her, like, no, I vigorously... Uh, 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 dispute all these facts. They're yes. not right. I'm going to, I'm going to yeah. fight. And then today there's a picture of uh, her and him snuggling in bed. Um, and, uh, well, they, they bought the rights to that photo. That was part of the, the 300 odd thousand dollar settlement was to, to buy the copyright on the photo of them in bed. I don't know if that's what got out today. I didn't see it. Yeah. It was on TMZ. It was on TMZ, but mm. that, that, um, you know, who knows what that means. And it's not, doesn't, it's, it's, it's not just a photo, but there was some, uh, 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 text messages that she had sent to other people that were associated with it that contradicted pretty strongly uh, her story. Like she was sort of referencing things that they did together. Um, it okay. fell apart today. Oh, it did. Okay. Okay. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, look, but you know, I didn't read those and I don't, you know, how much it fell apart, but I, he's obviously, I mean, look, you play with fire in this thing, you come back and you say, that's not true. He's a liar and he's a grifter and he's just broke. And you know, the guy's going to start releasing stuff, which is apparently what happened. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, there, there were a lot of people that said that, that you know, let's not condemn this woman 
until TMZ releases all the stuff today, <laughs> and then maybe can condemn her. Um, and I think that's that was right. And um, you know, I, it was just ironic that it was coming from from a lot of people that uh, hadn't done that in the past. And and you know, the believe all women thing, which you know, I think is crazy if you're talking about believe all anybody because that's just a recipe for I just that. find myself in these uh uh moments these times and whatever uh I want more organizations like fire I want a fire in every walk of life mm-hmm. somewhere people I who that. I Excellent. just yeah. kind of can trust that they're going to be uh, uh, fair in the way that they look yeah. at things yeah. it yeah. doesn't mean that they're going to be free of politics no one is uh they're going to have their own uh, uh beliefs about things but just that you know they're going to hew to principle in a way that right now we can't even trust the ACLU on speech in the same way that we could five years ago, which is a very saddening type of thing. Uh, I want yeah. there to be someone like that. It doesn't ha- always have to be like super libertarian, though that helps obviously, but just like fair. I think that the, that you see with the, the ACLU thing, which I think is one of the more depressing developments in the kind of free speech wars, if you can call them that. Um, yeah, it's been really depressing because you have the Nadine Strassens of the world and the old ACLU people, which, by the way, all you know, most of them are just like rock rib liberals. I mean, they're liberals of the class. I mean, the people that, you know, ACLU has put on the map defending the rights of psychotic Nazis to march through Skokie, which was a neighborhood in Chicago full of Holocaust survivors and elderly Jewish people who fled Europe. And they're going to see these guys, Frank, whatever is Frank Connolly or whatever his name was, marching through wearing swastikas. Um, and they defended that right. And their and, argument was because at the time it was still the civil rights movement and there yeah. were parts of this country where there were local municipalities who would have enacted laws that uh, limited the rights of people to congregate. And they said if we limit the rights of the Nazis to march through yeah. a Jewish neighborhood, then we leave ourselves vulnerable to other and I, restrictions. I, yeah, and that's right. And it's and, and unfortunately, you have to make that argument. I wish you didn't have to make yeah. that argument just to put it in the language of people you like to make sure that you say, oh, it's like those people who say like, oh, now I have all this respect for women because I have a daughter. It's like, no, you probably should have had that before. I mean, you know, it's, the, 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 I think that, the, that when you see this battle in the ACLU, particularly in the California ACLU, which is where it's really kind of germinated, is that you see the actual tangible results of a long arc of people believing that speech is violence and recasting the speech as violence and saying that speech on college campuses you should be protected from. Those people exit college, you know, imbued with this sense of, you know, I want to do something for the world. I want to go work for the ACLU. And they bring these ideas there. And I think this is one of these examples where in the past, why is it that all the previous generations of people coming through the ACLU haven't seen this, right? I say, well, you know, Charlottesville, there was a death at Charlottesville. There were deaths in the past. I mean, you remember Alan Berg, the uh, liberal radio host, Jewish liberal radio host, and I believe Colorado. I'm fairly certain that Alan Berg was, was in uh, Colorado. And he was shot uh, and killed by a neo-Nazi. He was speaking out on the radio against them. Mm-hmm. There was lots of violence. Is it the same situation as Charlottesville? No. But there was a lot of racial violence. There was a lot of this stuff. And it plopped, it came up here and there. So it's not like we're in a uniquely violent situation like Charlottesville. That happened. It's a tragedy and it's awful. And uh, preventing the right of assembly of people with bad views is not going to prevent these people from their murderous rages. 
in there, I think that the difference that you see now, because these things are no more frequent, probably less frequent, I would guess, sure. than they were in the past. I would, I would guess that as well. I would guess that's probably true, is that, that and again, I don't know that, I guess it's probably true. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the correlation, I don't know if it's causation or correlation, is that there has been a shift in the debate about speech in what speech is and how it should be handled in public, how it should be handled at universities, what it is to hear speech that you don't want to hear. Now it's kind of overlapping with this new generation of people that are coming into organizations like the ACLU and saying that, no, 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 we can't defend the rights of psychopathic Nazis and complete fucking scumbags like Christopher Cantwell, who, you know, should be spat upon if you see him in the street. But, you know, don't take away their right to talk when you spit upon them. I mean, this is you're, the thing. You're not that, actually endorsing spitting on. Yeah, sure I am. I don't care. Sure. That's a piece of. Trash. Like, would you like hawk the full loogie or full loogie? Okay, yeah. full loogie. It's not <laughs> once it's just spit. Yeah. Come a, on, man. Get a get over it. Going over. Get over it. It's, it's like assault. It's not. It's not assault. It is assault. It's spit. Spitting on no, people. No, assault, assault is getting punched. <laughs> spit doesn't hurt. It's just gross. <laughs> it wasn't the. It wasn't I don't the spit endorse that broke your nose the first two times. I. I. Oh no, that was that was assault. That was aggressive Irish Catholic assault. Well, uh, we, we're at a decent point here. Maybe we yeah, I gotta run. get close to, to wrapping this up. The hell you any, I got any, thing to do. <laughs> any um, stories that you guys want to want to highlight quickly before we run out of here? I got a quick, uh, some idiot wrote this okay. via our pal from last week, Jesse Single. Uh-huh. Uh, Theroot.com, always reliable for uh, this segment. <laughs> uh, the headline nope, is no comment. Peak Beckery, which uh, is a reference Becker. to Becky. The, oh, which God, is what you yeah. call a problematic white woman. Yeah. Uh, Brooklyn woman steals from local black-owned bakery, then calls her actions harmless. Now, this appears to be the story of a white woman who did, in fact, steal a plant shaped like a dog from a black-owned uh, store, uh, store, and then had somebody in a hoodie re- return it later after she felt guilty about it. Uh, but the entire crux of this piece is... It's nice she returned it. Yeah, the entire crux of this piece <laughs> is uh, that the word Becky comes up about every five words. Um, and th- there is even the phrase, our exploration of Beckydom. Um, and <laughs> Jeez. Uh, literally most Beckiest Becky to ever Beck. I'm like, I, I can go on and on. But uh, so you you mean it's just indulging in stereotypes about white people? There you go. You know, so yeah. yeah. So, so the, the the root is doing its root thing. I don't know who they're trying to win over here. If it's just kind of like uh, self back padding. So can I ask you a question, Anthony, as somebody who read this piece? As, would, as a white man, do you think that I'm this, not a white man. would this <laughs> have been? Uh, is she a Becky? I understand this. Is she a Becky if she stole from a white-owned bakery? No, this isn't the story if she stole from a white-owned bakery. But what? why is she Becky if she steals from a black-owned bakery? Did she know that the owner was black? I think she might be Becky if she stole from a, from a white-owned bakery. The, the fact is that she's Becky, and it's inescapable, and she's Becky on account of her whiteness. There is nothing in here. In Brooklyn. There is nothing in here that suggests that she knew it was a black owned store even when she apologized on social media because mm-hmm. apparently she was she was caught on video called out apologized on social media and then had somebody else return it which was also caught on video 
Um, uh, so, so there's nothing in here that specifically says that she felt white guilt about stealing from a black store. Um, no, I think she referred to it as harmless. So she wrote, oh, we, I saw the video of me stealing your Ivy dog and I am so sorry. It seemed harmless to me. I did not think it was a sentimental item and I apologize for taking your property without permission and definitely regret being so stupid. <laughs> so the apology itself is, is, is considered By the part way, of the if, if every mm. criminal was like Becky, <laughs> call me a supporter of Becky. <laughs> Like, I'm sorry. It was a really bad idea. I, mean, like, I wish most criminals uh, said that. I will uh, follow up this. Some idiot wrote this with a uh, generic uh, uh, some idiot, uh, you know, said this, and I don't know who, but there was a kind of aggregated story on the Daily Mail, the greatest uh, publication in Western Christendom, just because I'm addicted to all the celebrities that I don't know. Uh, people from British reality shows. And I'm like, oh my God, she did that. I'm like, who the fuck is this? Um, <laughs> and they had a thing about Madonna, Imagine. who apparently uh, uh, gave a uh, speech at the MTV Video Music Awards, or apparently still a thing, and which it was supposed to be some tribute to Aretha Franklin. And she talked about herself the whole time, right? Mm. And uh, this caused uh, unbelievable controversy. And people I know even were, were um, uh, denouncing her on social media and in various other places. And so there's, uh, you know, the Daily Mail has a story and then they have the f four or five bullet points about what the story is about. And um, somebody that Camille's uh, uh, loves. So uh, during her gushing speech to the Daily Mail, Madonna was criticized online as viewers accused the singer of speaking almost exclusively about herself with a rambling diatribe of personal anecdotes and stories. Next bullet point. Alicia Garza, co-founder of Black Lives Matter, tweeted uh, of the speech, whiteness has no shame. <laughs> now, I want to uh, add- How many addendum. founders of Black Lives Matter are there? Uh, they're, it's, yeah. I mean, they're like members of Menudo. <laughs> they turn 18 and they replace. Um, uh, and you know, I could get in trouble for that, but you know, the one, I, I, I know that the one, the other one that I know of like went to uh, like approve the, as an election monitor for Nicholas Maduro, which is my favorite one. Oh, um, that's true. That was another Black Lives Matter founder. Um, it's always like the second command of Al Qaeda. <laughs> so many of them. Uh, who is this? Uh, headline. Uh, if, if, compared to Al Qaeda. Like, uh, no, but my, my favorite thing about this is that, uh, is this uh, quote from uh, Miss uh, Garza. Whiteness has no shame. Uh, Miss Garza, I have a small addendum to your story. You might not, I don't know how old you are. You might be 25, might be 35. But if you're old enough to remember Madonna, Madonna has no shame. It, her whiteness is immaterial at this point. She is a narcissist. And every part of her career is a testament to her violent narcissism. And every single, every single iteration of her career has been appropriating from someone else. Yes, it's stealing yeah. from other people and not in that way of like, Oh, she wore an Indian headdress. Huh. And like gay culture would vogue everything. Yeah. And this woman became famous by being a self-centered buffoon. This doesn't have to do with the fact that she's white. Okay. Nor is it narcissism when Kanye comes up and uh, uh, during an award ceremony and uh, interrupts uh, somebody and says, hey, this is about me. Yeah. Not about, well, or, or, actually, even, or even interrupts actually, and says it's about Beyonce. Yeah, yeah. that's that's the thing. <laughs> oh, sorry. Interrupted yeah, yeah. and said it was about Beyonce. Yes, slay that. queen. Yeah. Is, is that what I say? That is what you're supposed to say. To square yeah. this circle, though, I, uh, she there, came up with there, Becky. There's, there's, Podcast to, to speak, so white. To speaking about <laughs> Becky, uh, part of this root thing is the uh, the author of this uh, post is taking credit for introducing Becky to Miriam Webster, which Miriam Webster is has on its website, words we're watching, Becky. 
Oh, yeah. Becky right. may end up in the dictionaries. Yeah. yeah. What, oh, what's, great. What I is, hope every other racial insult <laughs> it, gets it, into the dictionary. They, they will not. And and it does remind me the of the sort of Larry Kudlow, Peter Bremelow story, which we referenced briefly. Peter Bremelow being uh, the dude who founded V-Dare, um, yeah. who apparently attended a birthday party at Larry Kudlow's house. Um, one can presume Recently? that he didn't... Yes. This weekend. Last yeah. year. Jeez. One can presume that he didn't receive the invitation which said, hey, I so love V-Dare, please come to my birthday party. Um, they apparently have been friends for years when Larry was asked about this. And Larry didn't know what he's been up to for 20 years? Well, uh, who knows? I don't know. Yeah. I don't need to speculate about yeah. that. I just don't know what Peter um, Bernal has done all, since. All I, what I do know is the following. He's done a lot of racism. While I think, think V-Dare is a contemptible outfit and that they publish a lot of people with obnoxious, awful views, um, they also publish a lot of people who, as I've referred to in the past, like these identitarians like Richard Spencer, who say that they're standing up for white rights. The fact that there is a very close parallel between sort of the the clearest strains of wokedom, the ones that permit the existence of nonsense tropes like Becky dumb, hmm. um, that there is a proximity between that and Richard Spencer um, is a problem for those people that they really ought to be forced to reckon with. Um, unfortunately, we're not at that point. Instead, Marion Webster is prepared to adopt Becky um, into the lexicon of wonderful, acceptable, yeah. cute words, adorable internet tropes. I, I don't know um, that why. That we toss around. Yeah. But they are similarly gross for similar reasons. And the only reason one of these things gets a pass is because of a general sensibility about the the scope of victim victimization that has taken place in the United States and the fact that there is a constant need to perpetually talk about this and atone for it. Um, I don't think that's any excuse. I don't think that is any excuse for that kind of gross rank tribal uh, essentialism. Yeah, we ought to, we ought to cut that shit off. But, but the problem mean. is it's getting worse. And I mean, the number of people that are, and I, and it's so you can't, it's dangerous to even talk about this because, you know, you'd be like, oh, this is like, what are you, a white nationalist or something? It's like, no, I just, I find the argument in, I find it as a replacement for argument is this yeah. kind of phrase culture is like, you know, this constant use of white is a pejorative, which I think is, you know, bad for the country <laughs> as a whole. And uh -huh. I think that it, it alienates a lot of people sure. and do the people that do think this is a double standard. And, you know, I think they're right about that in that this constant, like, you know, um, you know, the guy that we talked about before, the, 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 the Rutgers professor. Extent, yeah. yeah. I mean, just saying like, you know, white people are doing this cause they're being loud in a restaurant is like, okay, so white people are doing this when there's a few people being loud in a, in a restaurant. I mean, look, you end up feeling, you know, oafish and dumb by saying the thing that everyone would say, which is if you talked about other groups with that kind of broad sure. brush, sure. you would be rightly considered somebody that was oafish yourself. And I don't, you know, people are reluctant to say that because the argument being in response, and it's been this argument for a very long time, and now it's picking up, it's getting legs again, is that you know, people of color cannot be racist because they don't have power, which is wrong in about a thousand different ways. It's, mm -hmm. it's just silly. And, it, and it's, it's just allowing people a pass to not think. 
And I think that this is a replacement for any sort of nuanced thinking. And it's also a signal to people like the professor himself who said this is a white guy. Yeah. And I hear this more from white people, I think, than I do from black people. But over at That's the root. You just don't have many black friends. I, I, I have you. Well, I mean, um, I don't count. Yeah. Decidedly. Yeah. But I do, tell you I do read the root canal once in a while <laughs> and get the same feeling. Yeah. But, you know, this constant harping on of white this, white that, you know, it is a varied culture. Guys. Yeah. And I don't think it's a culture that's uniform in any way. But if I were to be forced to say that it was, I would say that when I go and travel and do stuff for work and I see conglomerations of white people in Alabama, as I did last week, I think it's very different than what I see in New York. But they're both white. I don't know what to say about this anymore. I just don't. There's no. It's, it's not interesting. It's not interesting. And there's also the question of self-consciousness, which we talked about a bit uh, last week, it. too. Like, um, you know, is the motivation of the characters in your the play in your imagination mm. their whiteness mm. if you see two people uh two people with uh, white skin in a bar in my neighborhood and one is talking loud and one is talking soft obviously one is italian and the other one's french <laughs> yeah. uh, but like are either of them waking up in the morning and say, god <laughs> damn it i'm white I'm fine with those stereotypes. Well, <laughs> I mean, you got to narrow well, it always, down. But that's always been my issue with with uh, like insights related to black on black crime. Um, and when we talk about various crime statistics with respect to race, that I don't know in most of those instances that race is actually an explanatory factor here that's helping us to better understand the thing that's taking place. It's not as though black people who end up killing other people who happen to be black are targeting them on account of their blackness. There might be an argument here if what we're talking about is some sort of genetic, essential, inescapable essence of blackness, which is precisely what is being suggested when people make reference to Becky as as a, an archetype of whiteness. By the way, we called her Betty when I was going to sweaty uh, Betty. Yeah. Oh, is that yeah, a thing? Sweaty Betty. But I mean, Becky, you, saw, Becky is better. you saw the one in Park Slope I, in, in Brooklyn of the woman who was the latest Becky and was filmed um, yelling about someone standing in her, her stoop or something, standing under, it was raining, I guess, standing uh-huh. under this thing. And um, then- We call them awnings. Awnings, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it was actually an apartment. It was like in the door. And this woman came down screaming and called the police and everything. And it was like, here's Becky, another Becky thing. Becky, Becky, Becky. Yeah. And, you know, then later they had to, the people who were, who were talking about this had to kind of change their argument a little bit because uh, it was pointed, pointed out that Betty, Becky, number one, was Puerto Rican. Um, <laughs> but you can be a Becky and be Puerto Rican. Sometimes you're, you're not white and sometimes you are. And it doesn't matter. It depends on the circumstance. A white, a white and Hispanic. It, it, I think that it was also pointed out that she was autistic or something and oh, she was like that was the article that was the article yeah she was in the New York Post she had like some mental issues that probably would have been visited upon anybody who was standing there whether regardless of their race and then um, then came the flood of comments on Twitter like hey I have autism and I'm not a racist and it's like oh Oof. okay I don't I think it's time to back out of this thing that doesn't even resemble an argument I mean I don't I don't involve myself in these things but I just look at this stuff mystified by all of this conversation yeah um, and you know finding out later that like, oh, is, is that person, person even white uh, by the definition? Because I think that if that person 
hadn't been involved in this. And they were talking about white people and what it's like to be a person of color. And people and said, I'm Puerto Rican. Everyone would be like, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, yeah, like talk about it. But then when it's this situation, we said, well, you know, Puerto Rican, she's still, she's still like light skinned. And I, I just don't, it's so complicated and convoluted and exhausting to have these arguments. It's just like, it seems to me that the woman was being an asshole. Mm. And sometimes, I mean, we talk about New York as a multi-ethnic city. There's a very large minority population. Uh, I don't know what the breakdown is. I'm sure you would know. But it's a majority asshole it's, population. It's, yeah, it's a majority <laughs> asshole population. And it shouldn't, are we going to be at a point in human history that it's going to provide content to the root canal and all these other places when every time someone has an interaction with a person of a different race and it's filmed, it's going to be Becky, or is it going to be somebody who's pissed off that day and they're ecumenical about who they're pissed off with? You know, and I'm not, I mean, are we gonna be at a point where you have to hold your tongue if somebody cuts you off and they're not of the same race as you because somebody might be filming and then you're gonna be Becky or Bob or whatever. I think we're kind of at that point. I think we are. Yeah, we are. Anyway, we're kind of there. I just wanna point out uh, on the uh, question of white consciousness and Mm V-Dare, that V-Dare is named after Virginia Virginia Dare who's the first white, white girl yeah. born, born in America. They have a little bit of white consciousness over there. Yes. No, they're just racist. <laughs> yeah. Those are actual racists. Um, so not autistic Puerto Ricans. I, I did have <laughs> one, one thing and it's very, it's very quick and this is not particularly funny. It's just, I found it a little annoying. Um, there's a post at the Washington post. It's back from like August 16th. And it, the title of this article is quote, it's taking people out unquote. Uh, More than 70 people overdose on K2 in a single day in New Haven. Read a little bit further down in this story and you will discover um, that it is not, in fact, K2 that people are overdosing on. This is K2 laced with fentanyl. Um, What I find really interesting in here is a couple of things. One, I mean, if I had a box of Captain Crunch and I were to take shards of razor blades and sprinkle them throughout the box, (laughs) and you were to eat this box of cereal and have a number of cuts inside of your mouth, no one would suggest that delicious children's cereal is sending people to the fucking hospital. We would note that it's razor blades. Razor blades are dangerous, and they probably shouldn't be in children's cereal. K2 may, in fact, be dangerous under some circumstances. I'm not aware of that, however. But in either case, the specific I think it is thing, dangerous, isn't it? It, it may be. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just saying, I don't know much it's about that. Not good for your brain, yeah. but it's not going to kill what, you like fentanyl will. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I do know that fentanyl, on the other hand, has a reputation for causing problems like that. Yes. And lacing it with this is probably a consequence of the drug prohibition. But whatever the article doesn't get around to that. So one thing that it does do, however, that I found particularly annoying is that it makes reference to the potency of the drug in a very precise sort of fashion. And and you'll encounter this all the time. Um, Catherine Hawk, an emergency department physician at Yale New Haven Hospital, told the New Haven Register that the Drug Enforcement Administration confirmed the drugs contained K2 mixed with fentanyl, a synthetic opioid that's roughly 50 times as potent as heroin. 50 times as potent. On what scale? Are we talking about 50 times as potent? How do we measure potency in a circumstance like this? My favorite is with fentanyl. Is a, it's always is, like they get a bag, they get a big bag. Get, and it's like, this could kill the entire population of the United States. <laughs> and I'm like, but you know, it's not going to, because no one's going to, not everyone's going to eat a bunch of fentanyl and die. But, but 50 but times so, yeah, is potent. I don't know that there's like actually any, any sort of process. scientific scale for that whatsoever. I haven't seen it's it. complete make-believe. This is not a thing. I mean, Am I wrong? I don't. I don't. You should be able to 
measure like potency per you know how? gram or well, something. Well, po- potency can mean potency can mean how high it's going to make you or how close it's going to bring you to a heart attack. There's there's different uh, ways of measuring. This, there's there is no fundamental standard sure. way for measuring. No, I agree this. with you. We're not actually talking about a thing. And most of the time, when people make references to potency or it's two times more addictive, it's fifty times more addictive than heroin. Sugar is more addictive than crack cocaine. These are all nonsense claims frequently made by law enforcement who are not in fact scientists and have zero basis whatsoever for the claims that they're making so about no, the relative potency and the relative no addictiveness of these things. Proof standard in opioids? Uh, that that goes across all categories yeah. of drugs. Yeah. Where 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 was this one? This was in the Washington Post. No, but where was the oh, New Haven. Okay, yeah, because the New Haven, it said that... 70, they, 70 people overdosed yeah, on K2. Yeah, and the, the initial... When was that story, by the way? August 16th. Okay, because there's a one from the following day. It says an investigation to K2 overdoses in New Haven reveals drug contaminated with fubinica. I don't Not know. fentanyl. Uh, well, I don't know what that is. Maybe, I mean, I don't, maybe it's... I'll hmm. give me some fubinica. It's an ultra-potent synthetic cannabinoid. Um, known to here you go. Even known better. to be fifty to eighty-five times more powerful <laughs> than K two. That sounds scientific. Yeah, I don't know if that's to a eighty-five. Thing. It's not fifty yeah. to eighty. It's fifty to eighty-five. 85. Yeah, li- uh, listeners, you you're out there. Some of you are are smart. Mark Kleiman, I know you're listening. Someone, someone, tell me. Is don't, it a thing? Don't send us Fubinica. Send us, send us <laughs> yeah. crypto and booze. Send but me do send us information. About this. I want all the Fubinica. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, anyway, uh, I'm done. Me too. I think that's it. Bye, bye. Later. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.